Hello and welcome to episode 97 of Greater Than Code. My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I'm here with Astrid Conte. Thank you, Coraline. And I'm also here with my friend, John Sayers. Thank you, Astrid. And I'm here to introduce our guest, Brandon Hayes. Brandon left the world of marketing to find that creating software made him happy. Brandon lives in Austin, Texas, where he leads teams and tries to help make the world and technology a more humane place. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hi, thank you so much. Brandon? Yes. What is your superpower and how did you develop it? Okay, this is going to sound a little too on the nose, but I really do think that my superpower is helping other people discover their superpower. It is pretty much my favorite activity. Sitting down with somebody and understanding what motivates them and what impact that they hope to have and what they care about and helping them combine that with attributes about themselves that are special. You know, we don't always feel special, but I think everybody knows there's something about them that's special and that confluence of something about them that is either weaknesses that they've worked on so much that they become strengths or natural strengths that they've worked on. That confluence of that and their interest and their desired impact on the world and something that the world really needs is really fun to help people uncover. So you're like the Professor Xavier of the software development world. That would be my dream. Yes, that would be my dream. That's definitely the skill track that I'm trying to level up at is I find more satisfaction. And, and you know, as a career advances over the period of years, you, you discover like impact that takes years to, to have. And helping people make those discoveries, you know, five or more, 10 years ago is starting to bear fruit now in their lives. And that's a, a really satisfying place to be. But you have to be playing a real long game. Yeah, and I think that's something that's often lacking. We certainly see business models that are focused on quarterly results. And I think that a lot of people management focuses on quarterly results or maybe an annual review. But people stay at jobs for so short a time these days. How do you maintain that influence? I can see that influence being really great when someone's working for you. But I had a manager once that said that his goal would be that if I moved on to another role, that he would still be around to help me. And he would want to help me find that better fit. So how do you maintain that kind of relationship when people change jobs so frequently? That's a really extraordinary point. Uh, so some of the toxicity of our industry is that people perceive these relationships to be short term and largely transactional or they are compressed to fit inside it what people perceive to be a 10 or 15 year career instead of a 30 to 45 year career. And now that, you know, we've comp- tried to compress that and you see these 18 month stints that people stitch, a, you know, uh, y- your career out of, it's very difficult to feel a sense of permanence. And it's really easy to feel a sense of burnout that you haven't achieved everything you're supposed to by 35 or 40. And instead of realizing, wow, I'm only halfway through my career, all my impact is ahead of me. Like your manager was a great example of that, of saying, hey, this relationship isn't around this job here. It requires taking that longer view and looking at somebody's career track and helping them design a career track that exceeds the bounds of the work context that you share in that moment. And that's a really cool perspective. And I think it's kind of rare, actually, for people. You know, you talked about there being sort of quarter to quarter results. You can't always live in this 45 year span. But being able to take that 45-year span or 30, you know, 30 to 45-year career span and fit these little slivers of you know, what are we going to accomplish this quarter or this year uh, and understand that this is a tiny sliver of somebody's overall career 
periodically checking in on that every few months or, you know, every at least twice a year uh, and having that conversation in that broader context really reshapes what those relationships are about. It's the gifts of getting older. As I've gotten older, one of the gifts that's given me is that perspective is a lot easier to access. I definitely feel like the older part is something that is kind of downplayed. Uh, This is something that I talk about with some of my friends now. We try to imagine where we're supposed to be when we're 50, 60. It's challenging when you don't have a lot of role models that you can see who are thriving in their careers. And it makes it really hard to start to set those next level goals. Because once you've done some of the like foundational, I've laid these bricks and I can do this thing, uh, then it becomes a harder, like more nuanced problem to try to figure out what you're supposed to grow into, uh, which is something that I struggle with a lot. I think part of that too is how quickly people are expecting to advance in their careers right now. After three or four years being given a senior title, there's not a whole lot of room for growth there. Yeah, and a, and a lot of companies don't really have a really good non-managerial tech ladder. So you get to senior and then there may not even be somewhere to go after like another title after that beyond, you know, VP to CTO. And there's a big, there could be a pretty huge gap there when you're ready, before you're ready for that. Yeah, and in that vein, it's almost a revolutionary act to show up at your job and say, we're going to design as a manager. If you have, if you come in as a manager, you have some position of a sense of responsibility and ownership for d- making decisions like that and choosing to make the decision that we're going to implement a tech ladder. Even if we don't have any people currently that qualify for it, we're going to set up a basic tech ladder that takes people all the way up through a 30, 35 year longer career and allows them to continue to progress in, you know, impact and income and access the, the multiple effect of their uh, within the context of uh, of your company, even if you're not at a place where that makes a ton of sense yet, I've found that to be like helps set the stage for helping people understand that that you can have conversations in that vein. And then the cool thing that happens is when people at that experience level do come and talk to you, they understand that they have a place with you. And it has been a really phenomenal recruiting tactic. I can say I work with uh, multiple people that have been doing this thirty plus years now. And having access to people that have been doing this for longer th- than 30 years and have stayed and stayed technical because they've wanted to and have a uh, path to continue progressing along that track in their own way has been – that's such a hugely overlooked segment of our engineering population um, because it doesn't feel that useful if you're, you know, booting, you know if you're lighting the match on a – 18 month startup and you either raise funding or shut down that first, eight, you know, a lot of people with 30 years of experience don't want to experience that 18 month cycle over and over again. But if you're at a company that has a little bit longer legs underneath it, at that point, it might make sense to start building out that engineering track and attract some of those kind of people and then give access to, to mentors like that to people that have less experience. When uh, I got a new boss about six months ago, eight months ago, I work at Stitch Fix and I'm a principal engineer. And at that time, principal engineer was the highest individual contributor level there was. So I got a new director and I had a one-on-one with her. And she asked me, how do you feel your manager is doing in guiding your career progression? And I said, what career progression? (laughs) There's nowhere for me to go. There were a few other people in a similar position. So the company did the right thing and they designed new levels above principal. And with a level matrix that actually explicitly said, 
here are the expectations and responsibilities at each of those levels. So advancement from principal to architect requires working on an on a project that spans all of engineering. And then to get to that architect level two, you have to be someone who I, who's identified as something of an industry expert on some topic that's relevant to the company. And that makes so much sense. And that, that's the progression. I feel like we do such a disservice, Brandon, to the people you're talking about who are 25 or 30 years into their career with, with basically nowhere to go. And I'm so thankful to work at a company where they have actually thought about that and they have actually planned for that long-term career growth. I love that. I love that idea. I love what Stitch Fix is doing. I've followed them. I've followed Lara Hogan. Uh, I've seen really interesting stuff at Etsy and Meetup and uh, other companies that are doing this sort of in public. And uh, I did see Stitch Fix. I think they've published some materials around some of the stuff that they're doing. I'd love to see more of an open source strategy to this because the impact that that we can have as an industry is really large. Like everybody benefits from uh, sharing more information because I think as an industry, we're like a little baby at this stuff. Like I feel embarrassed sometimes that how, at how elementary my, my take on, on this stuff is where I'll sit down with somebody and I'll be like, here's, here's a spreadsheet of the list of things that your job entails now and the list of things at the level, the next level. And we're going to go through and decide, you know, where you are on any of those things and use that to come up with a plan. But even that, this little baby strategy that we have of stuff that somebody made up here and we're iterating on internally and trying to take in some outside influence into, all of that stuff is like, it feels like we're just doing little baby versions of something that could be really powerful. And if more people in the industry were to participate in this, there could be a more generally accepted you know, understanding of what these levels are and could be. I would love to have that be more uh, something we talk about publicly. I just made a note, Brandon, to bring up with my managers if we can open source that and maybe do that in the form of a blog post on multi-threaded. I love that. So I kind of want to come back to something that Astrid talked about, about being earlier in your career and not having access to people that are more senior. This really bums me out because if you think about the reasons for that, you know, some of us have been in the industry a little longer and I know people, and Coraline, you uh, you can correct me, but my sense is sometimes you may fall into this category because I feel like even I do sometimes. You feel like you're holding on to this industry by this just the just your fingernails just la- dug in. And I know too many people that have burned out and just kind of let go. And it's almost as easy as falling asleep to walk away from uh, the culture and toxicity of the industry. And I think um, we're doing a real disservice to people to you know burn our people out at 35. You know, and and shorten the expected lifespan of what an average engineer can productively do. You know, once you're 35, you've outlived your usefulness to this. The, you know, the VC-run startup ecosystem. And I don't know what all of those factors are. I'm curious. Like, I don't even know if I'm on the right track. But the sense that I have is that we're burning people out before that point. Yeah, I think there's a big gap um, between the 25-year-olds entering our industry and rising rapidly, not finding a path forward, and either dropping out or going into management because there's no other path forward. I actually did that my first time around in my career. I went the management track and uh, I got so unhappy. The things that I liked about management were the people development skills and responsibilities that I had. And I didn't think there was a way to do that as an individual contributor. But I knew that personally I was happiest when I was writing code and helping people. 
And I found that as a very senior person in my profession, that is a possibility. And I can do those two things together. So I'm, I'm much happier as an IC, but I think I'm very lucky to have gotten to the point where those are my responsibilities. And I'm not sure that people are aware that that is a path, that there is an alternative to management. And I think in a lot of companies, there is no alternative to management. I think that's so true. Uh, like for me, it's a little bit different because since I changed into this career from another one, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that it feels so much more narrow, uh, the things that you're able to accomplish. And it doesn't feel as easy to take whatever experiences that you do have and share them at different levels in the company. And I think that that's maybe a function of the fact that what you're doing is so technical and so you're kind of siloed into a particular group. It doesn't allow for that mentorship and fostering of other younger minds and maybe even other minds that have been focused in other areas uh, to have that cross collaboration so easily, which is something that I, I struggle with because I really benefited in the beginning of my career from because I was working in the energy sector. So I was doing a technical sort of job, but my job wasn't really tailored to only one part of the company. So I benefited a lot from learning from different types of managers and different types of individual contributors, just because I was able to be in the room with them. And that seems so much harder to do in technology, because you're just kind of put into your position, and you have to do this particular thing. And you don't really get to hear so much what's going on in other parts of the company, or even get to contribute, which is something that I got to do that really helped me figure out that I like technology. And it's kind of hard inside of technology to figure out what else I like. Because if I'm not just coding under somebody, then it's like you're not growing. I've actually been kicking around the idea. I haven't implemented anything anything like this yet, but trying to think of a way to implement the idea of actually mentoring people outside of the technology side of our organization. Just as I'm becoming more of a manager type person, like just having other people in other departments who may need some sort of mentorship, whether they're like outside of technology, I'm doing that inside of technology, but sort of broadening it out and sort of and also just bringing those extra parts of the company more into my awareness and also exposing them to a bit more of the technology and then also just helping them be you know, better at what they're doing. I love that. And it both makes me it sends me like a, a little bit of a thrill of hope, you know, that that's the direction things can head and like a fit of rage <laughs> that it requires somebody to that that is just moving into a manager track from a technical track to even conceive of an idea of how would we start connecting? How would we start building connective tissue to help engineering teams be more connected to other parts of the business? I find that this is actually a big part of management that's really lacking and I find very frustrating that there's this sense of we're supposed to reinforce the silo and protect the engineers from mean old business. And instead of this is a value center for this business and is usually a value center to like a hundred to one ratio in a lot of workplaces where it's 10 to one or a hundred to one ratio of the investment you make into your technology, into the people that build your technology and the value the business draws from it. And so you're on a, you're kind of protecting engineers. If your job is to protect them from all the mean old business, you're actually protecting engineers from the impact they're really having on the business, protecting them from understanding the value that they're, they're actually creating. And it creates this weird power disparity from, you know, the, the people that have the ideas and the people that execute it. And you're just the executor. You're just, you know, and 
you know, engineers, it's hard to complain too much because it's a reasonably well-paid profession and people are generally well taken care of because it's a, it's hard to find, you know, qualified people to fill roles in this industry. And so, you know, you, you have massages called in at some workplaces, lunch catered, all those things. And so it, it feels bad to complain about the power disparity, but it's still there and it feels wrong and it keeps engineers from achieving more of their potential by contributing actual business value. If you knew more of the why of when we're trying to accomplish stuff, uh, if you give that to engineers, you can actually generally trust them to do something really cool with it. And so this sort of like basically so much of what I see in bad management, which comprises most of management and engineering is basically most of what we in, in man engineering is patching over low trust relationships. Like, Crummy management. This has been a very expensive lesson for me as a manager because I fall into this trap all the time on an individual level and an organizational level. The biggest temptation to fall into in, in engineering management is, let's say two people have a conflict with each other. One person escalates you, to you. You go to their manager. You try to like – and what you've done is you've created a route around a low-trust relationship instead of debugging. Hey, why is this, why is this a low-trust relationship? How do we build trust? And so much of what we do organizationally is patch around the fact that business doesn't feel like they understand what engineering does and they don't really trust them to do their thing. Hey, we need to really time box what they do. We really need to uh, keep a lid on, you know, when they say technical debt, I know what they're going to do is a six month quote unquote refactoring where they rewrite our entire system and produce no business value. Uh, and then on the engineering side, you know, that we feel like we're being crushed under this like oncoming steamroller of, release dates and targets and all that stuff. And most management jobs are kind of crappy because it feels like your job is to, is to keep routing around these low trust relationships. So fixing that at the root kind of requires a different outlook and hopefully an organization that can, that will actually support that. I've worked in both. I've worked in organizations that will support that. It sounds like stitch fix is one of them. Uh, and I've worked in organizations that would not support that and spent a long time trying to figure out why, I was miserable. Um, and it was, you know, it's trying to run counter to the values of an organization. And so creating an understanding of the definition of management as facilitating the communication and facilitating trust relationships uh, and helping people gather their own contacts and empowering engineers to make business decisions. That to me is like what I think 10 years from now, I'd like to see more of the job of managers to be. And that's a pretty bold, bold ambition, but I'm seeing more of it. So I'm, I'm reasonably hopeful, John, when you, you you talk about the stuff that you're working on, that sounds like it's headed in that direction. Uh, I'm curious to know, John, what what other stuff you're learning as you kind of transition more into manager roles? I don't know if you've done management in the past or you're relatively new to it. What what drew you to it? I'm completely new to it. I'm just sort of in the process of transitioning. I think part of what actually made it feel like it was a place that I wanted to go was the fact that there are better resources out there now than there were even a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, there's The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier and the Michael Lopp book and the stuff they're doing at Water Cooler. And so th there are a lot of great new resources that talk about managing from this humanistic perspective rather than from the sort of businessy, businessy perspective, which was always a huge turnoff to me. And so seeing that it's a thing that you can do where it's about cultivating people and relationships, you know, suddenly I was like, oh, that is a thing I, I might actually enjoy doing. Yeah, I've had I've met managers where 
I'm literally like, as I start talking to them about their job and what their goals are and what they understand it to be, you can kind of tell when these managers felt like they were pushed into that path. It wasn't what they wanted to do. They were pushed into that path because they felt like it was their only maneuver into any kind of career progression. And uh, I asked somebody that's like really concerned me at once, like, why, why are you doing this? Like, as you, every time we talk, you dig, you know, right back into the technical details of stuff. Why do you want to be a manager? And they said, oh, I want control. I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's like saying, I want to become a parent so I can control the life of a child. Like you really do, you, you know, that's both not a good wow. motivation and a deep misunderstanding <laughs> of what the job entails. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, Prepare for your level of control and influence to go down, actually. <laughs> well, it so. sounds like it's related to what you were talking about, Brandon, with the routing around the mistrustful relationships. That it's like, I don't want to have to do that, uh, be in that situation where I can't do anything about it. So I'd rather just be a manager so I can have some say over how this happens. Yeah, it. I, that's actually a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Is like, hey, we have I, I don't trust the current management structure. And when I talk to people that are like close to burnout in the industry or I feel I have a friend, uh, I'll go ahead and name him. He's a really great guy named Elric Ryan. And he was uh, he, he's talking to potential employers and he's like, oh, yeah, I've learned to build my own path. I've learned to fight for myself. I've learned to do this for myself. And I'm like, man, it, it really sounds like you haven't had a good manager. He's like, oh, gosh, no, I've never had who who has a good manager. And that kind of stuff. My friend Nick tells me that he likes it when I get indignant because I don't get indignant about much. I usually see most sides to something, but I'm very frustrated with the state of understanding of the role of managers in our industry and that their role is to kind of corral and direct. And as you're seeing more resources come out, I think Google came out with a resource. I forget what they called it, Project Something. And uh, they came out with 10 Behaviors of Great Managers. And I forgot the name of their project, but they, they basically came out with 10 attributes and chief among them was, is a great coach, is a great listener. All these things that people, uh, does not micromanage, you know, delegates and empowers people, makes the team inclusive and safe. Uh, all these things that historically we hadn't really thought about as management skills or leadership skills are starting to emerge as, hmm, as we study successful teams, it turns out the stuff that you would want to have somebody to fight for when you were an individual contributor actually are the things that make managers great. And so this sort of old school, I don't know if y'all have heard of Taylorism. Taylor was a, a manager from the turn of the century in the early 1900s that said, hey, my job is to make the automatons in the factory produce more. You know, how do I increase output of people that you don't trust to even come to work, much less produce while they're here? So there's an entire century of built up expectations around what people management theory even is that we're just starting to dig out from underneath. And I'm not a very patient person. And so I, I get pretty frustrated with the state of things. And we're, as we move away from more toward a more humanistic approach, as you said, John, away from a lot of this sort of tailorist, low trust, asses in seats type management. I'm curious to know if you, you know, uh, Astrid, you were talking about having great connections with managements in other career tracks. Uh, I'd love to learn more about that. Uh, what, what was working for you that you'd like to see more of? Before you answer, sorry, I just wanted to go. That was uh, Google's project was Project Oxygen. Uh, just uh, before yes. we get too far thank from you. the thread. <laughs> yeah, thank you for Thanks, that. Thanks, John. So the company I was in at the time was not very corporate when I started. And that was great because we didn't have all these structures. They were just interested in hiring people who were smart and who were willing to learn. And they did not really care 
about like, do you have this particular degree, all that they were much more interested in what do you want to learn? If you want to learn this, we will find people who will help you and train you and you can learn how to do it because we had so much work that we didn't really have time uh, to make all those different hierarchies. And as a function of that, it meant that whenever you had questions, you were empowered to go find the person who could answer your question as opposed to go up a chain and have somebody else direct you to another person to eventual training, which would happen three months later. And because of that environment and me coming into it right after I finished college, uh, I didn't have this distinction between business and engineering. That's something I kind of learned later as I moved into bigger companies and I would have a problem and I would be trying to solve my problem and they would tell me I'm not allowed because I'm not in the engineering department. And I was really pissed off about that because I was much more trained that if there is a problem, you find all the ways to solve it. Either you solve it or you find other people who can help you solve it. But if you encounter the problem, you're now part of the team of trying to make sure it gets fixed. And then that slowly changed when that company became more corporate. And when I moved into other bigger companies to you pass this problem on to this group of, of, of experts and you let them do their job, uh, which meant that you lost a lot of the meaning. And then as for me, as an employee who was trying to learn, it made it really hard to understand like what happened when I threw it over the fence? Why is it no longer a problem? Because um, you just don't have those open lines of communication. So I think it was really nice to just kind of like what you were talking about, Brandon, and just empowering people to go find a solution. Because I didn't even really understand that a lot of what I, what I was doing was a technical job until much later, because that wasn't how I was taught to think of my work, whether it was technical or non-technical. I was taught to solve problems, whatever that meant. And as long as I was working on getting the problem solved, I was doing my job. I think that's a really cool outlook. And I think what it actually taught you was you were learning DevOps philosophy, but you weren't in a role that you know, had any language for that. Yeah, that, yeah this, that's like, very true. Like the DevOps philosophy of understanding the value chain. What's the chain that causes value to be delivered? And how do we remove friction in that chain? Who needs to get empowered? What, pro, you know, what approval stages does stuff get stalled in? What, you know, walls does stuff get thrown over where context is lost? Like identifying that, you know, the delivery of value from end to end and streamlining mm -hmm. that. Protecting people's ability to have that kind of autonomy as a company scales is actually a very tricky job in management. I'm finding it personally very difficult in my in my current position even. As the company gets bigger and you have more people, there are more cooks in the kitchen. And if you don't scale that carefully, I don't think it's controversial to say, like I have friends that work at GitHub saying nothing about the current state of GitHub or whatever, but there it, there is no secret that GitHub became a shit show as they tried to scale their culture of total autonomy. And total perceived autonomy, total flat hierarchy organization, you know, hashtag managerless or whatever. And it turns out that scaling that isn't just letting people do whatever they want all the time. Uh, silos and clicks form and then power structures become implicit. So helping like uh, my, my friend Nick Means talks about this and says, uh, my job is to remove processes as much as possible and then only put process back in when you start experiencing pain. I've um, often said that processes are a scar over a communication wound. I like that metaphor. I do too. Yeah. Brandon, you said something in passing that I'd like to drill into a little bit, and that you talked about context and context being lost or preservation of context. I've had a lot of managers who have said, 
my job is to be an umbrella and to keep the shit from leaning down on you. And I wonder if that is actually a healthy approach. Shouldn't I, as an engineer, know all of the implications of the work that I'm doing and all of the motivations at the business level for the work that I'm being asked to do? So I'm out of my depth at that point because I think the size of organization, there is maybe a size of organization that requires the shit umbrella approach. Um, I had a really great manager at AT AT&T that viewed himself that way, but also that team accomplished nothing. (laughs) We were shielded from interference so that we could work successfully to deliver a product that ended up being like destroyed. And so I do view that as context removal and I do view that as not the healthiest approach and a, you know, the shit umbrella approach is one of those trust, you know, a trust routing issue where you can't trust the organization. I don't know that if there's a company size where that becomes absolutely required for people getting their work done, certainly at AT AT&T where the company is too big to impact personally at any size. Maybe I'm mentioning company names and <laughs> too much here, but I don't, you know, it's also too big where they couldn't possibly care about what I have to say about them. It was a great place to work in a lot of ways, but it was just too big to personally care about. And so at a certain company size, I really don't know if that becomes necessary, but I would say it's a lot later than people think. And people that carry around the notion that that's part of what the manager's job is, I would say it's probably time to dispose of that pretty much industry wide. I would say nine out of 10 manager jobs should not have that in the job description or in the attitude of the job. That's my hot take. I did have an experience where our manager kind of shielded us from certain things that was useful. And I think it just depends on what the actual shit is. So in this case, it was not real work stuff. It was that inter office kind of fighting for power type of stuff that had nothing to do with what we were doing which was actually helpful because then we weren't you know, worried that we were causing a problem that wasn't a real problem or that we were doing something wrong because somebody just doesn't like it because they didn't come up with that idea themselves. Like that type of shit I think you should protect. But the effect of your work and how it's being used in the business I think is really important that you have access to that. Yeah, and sifting between what what is trivia like that, what's trivial and not impactful to your job, like I may not be able to lobby successfully for uh, the removal of deeply formal expense reporting, but I can do the expense reports or, you know, pull that off of somebody's desk so they're able to focus on their job. And so there's a little bit of small levels of politics like that, or, or, you know, like you said, inner office things that don't have any bearing on the day-to-day job that don't actually have any direct business impact that are noise and being able to tell signal from noise and help, you know, increase the signal that gets to the team and the context that's relevant to them. Yeah, that that's probably part of I would say that's definitely not one on one stuff. That's part of the art of the job that I'm very much still learning. So, Brandon, what was your biggest surprise when you became a manager? My biggest surprise when I became a manager was that I wasn't good at it. I thought I was going to be a natural. I'm like, I like people. I get along well with engineers. When we pair program, I can get along with cranky engineers that are generally like people look at as the grumpy one that doesn't want to talk to anybody. But I like them just fine. And when we talked about code and stuff like that, I found them to be generous in spirit and kind and empathetic and uh, just kind of a little burnt on organizational BS. And so I thought, surely when I go into managed teams, that all of those skills and experiences and natural tendencies were going to translate. And I actually kind of sucked at it. I feel like I'm a recovering shitty manager. And that was a very humbling experience. So I would say the biggest surprise was the skills required to do the job weren't things that came as naturally to me as I thought they would, just by liking people. That's a good start. 
the requirement of practicing active listening probably is the, and I would say the two things that I had to learn as a manager that are basically the two key things you need a manager to do, which is to listen without reacting. You listen, process, store information, gather context uh, without reacting in, in you know any meaningful way until you have more, enough information to do something to help or allow the person to help some, do something on their own. So like listening and actively and letting go was not a natural skill. And I had a lot of criticism uh, about my abilities in that area from people that were truth tellers that I managed, fortunately. And I would say that's probably the biggest one. And then enabling people to solve their own problems is a really big one. Instead of trying to solve things for them or make decisions for them, I thought my abilities as a decision maker were going to make me a good manager. And that wasn't the case at all. There's very little of that. I make very few decisions. So I, w- I would say those are probably the two biggest ones that surprised me is how few decisions you actually make and how much of your time should be spent just listening to people. You said at the top of the show that you were sort of working on a talk that you're that's coming up and some sort of new ideas that you're turning over in your head. And do you, you want to talk about those a little bit more? It's definitely early stages, but I've have multiple years of notes about what I've learned in management and it's scattered all around. And so I named the talk something I felt safe about. It doesn't sound very exciting and it's a little bit safe. It's called the New Manager's Toolkit, but really it's a treatise on like the moral imperative of management that bad managers are causing people to burn out and leave the industry and that with with a few techniques and a few like applying some small levers you can actually change the expectation of what managers are for within your organization because it turns out nobody really knows and so you can in an area where where nobody really knows what they're doing it's sort of like the web in 99 and 2000 and then web applications in 2004 2005 you can apply a few let this is really early days for management and so a few people with really good intentions and are willing to sort of study and listen have the ability right now to make a significant impact in whatever company you walk into and shape their understanding of what ma- managers are there for and so if i could evangelize one thing it would be this idea that Educating yourself on what managers could be for using, like you'd said, there's new materials out there like the manager's path. I would say the other really big thing for me lately is this idea of radical candor, of caring a lot about somebody personally and being direct with them is another thing that I had to really grow in skill at. If people are willing to sort of self-educate on this stuff and start building the first tier of a support ecosystem for management and engineering, this is such a nascent area that you could have a pretty tremendous impact on the lives of a number of people by deciding to jump in and participate right now. Management doesn't have to be for everybody. Not everybody wants to do it. But if you see that opportunity and it comes up, you could have a major impact by just being part of this new wave of engineering leadership. And I want to see a a better trained, uh, more people-oriented, more diverse group of people doing that. Brandon, everything you've talked about so far presupposes a manager who has a high degree of self-awareness and a desire to improve. What do you do as an IC when your manager doesn't have those things? Are there techniques for managing from below that you can kind of influence your manager to become better at the kinds of skills that you're talking about? So first I will say this is the most important thing is the culture of the company in which you work, because that's the direction the wind is blowing. If you have a culture of tolerating crappy behavior and uh, a culture of, you know, if it reinforces the stuff that you don't like in your manager, 
I almost would say it's not going to be a, you're not going to get have a lot of success tacking your sale against the wind. But if you look at your overall organization and say, no, the organization and I are mostly in line, but my manager is out of line with what I need. And the organization would back me up at this if I look a little higher in the org chart than where we are. I feel a lot more secure in advising somebody to have a direct conversation because I think it's almost always safe to say, I'm not getting what I need from you. That's the tactic that people took with me. Hey, Brandon, we're in these one-on-ones and I feel like you're dominating them. Uh, I feel like you're, you know, you're giving me context about my work and trying to inspire me or whatever. And that's great. Thanks. But I don't feel listened to and I need that. Or when you do listen to me, you're not really listening all the way because as soon as I mention something that I need, you're reacting and doing something with it before giving it time to settle or giving me the opportunity to solve my own problems. So the best changing moments I've had as a manager, and I know that this, you know, I don't want to assume that everybody is going to react this way, but I do think that being able to communicate directly uh, with a person in, in terms of my needs, like I need something from you and I'm not getting it currently. I need you to be able to handle this for me. And at least you can ha- you sort of negotiate about what your manager can and can't provide for you. And I've seen some good resources from Julia Evans lately. I don't know if you've seen any of her comics about this, about sometimes you have to sort of build your own. Uh, I'm trying to, who else has been talking about? I think Lara Hogan maybe as well, talking about building your own manager Voltron, about how to stitch a decent manager out of a group of people in your constellation of coworkers. Uh, and maybe inside inside and outside your company. So there are a couple of tactics you can take. One of them I would suggest strongly is if if you're willing to take the time to read the book Radical Candor, uh, it's a great guide to having these types of conversations successfully. Uh, and it's great to have a conversation framed in terms of what you need. Otherwise, you may have to sort of understand the limitations of what you're working with and understand that those needs aren't going to change. You're just going to have to get them met in different ways. And then I love telling people to quit their jobs. So (laughs) if you're in a position of that level of privilege where you have the ability, don't be shy about that one, especially if it's out of a sense of loyalty. If you don't have that position of privilege, everything from that point is coping strategies and trying to make something good out of it and recognizing that a lot of good lessons are going to come from that. But if you have that ability, there hopefully are, uh, are opportunities out there. I love putting a nice bow on things if it's at all possible. I think we've, we've covered it a little bit already. But the thing that I find most exciting in our entire industry right now and fascinating is this idea that engineers are starting to wake up to the fact that they should have business level input. They're starting to recognize the value that they provide and are starting to recognize that they would provide more if they had more information and more context. And so my goal is to create, at least the people that I work directly with, I want to see a next generation of development and engineering managers that are there to facilitate that. My hope is that more people wake up and realize this is something that you can do. Because I was certainly not equipped to do this, even though I was deluded enough to think that I was. My hope is that people that don't have that same Dunning-Kruger effect bullshit of thinking they can do this just because they think they can, that people that may currently think they aren't qualified for this, or this is something that somebody else would do, recognize some of these topics as things they care about. And that's the only qualifier. So Coraline, you'd said earlier, what do you do when we're in a position where we have people that that don't have that level of self-awareness or maybe even don't care? My goal is push those people out of the industry with a bunch of people that do care over the next 15 to 20 years. I would really love to see more of that uh, those types of people. And that's why I talk about it in almost in rev- like a revolutionary act, 
because it is just quietly replacing people that don't understand what this job entails or the value that could be provided, putting people in there that do this a little better because they are more self-aware or they're willing to self-study and watching them have more success building successful teams that get software out the door and are happy and uh, hopefully don't leave their jobs as frequently and start having teams where you have 30 to 35 year veterans as you know, I have people on my team currently where this is their last job. And I think that's super cool where they know that, Hey, this is the job I'm going to retire from. Okay, great. What do you want to leave this industry with? What gifts do you want to have left this industry when you're wrapping it up? That's such a fun conversation to have in a room full of people that includes 20 to 25 year old engineers. Uh, I want to see more of that. Brandon, at the end of every show, as you know, as a long-term listener, we like to take a moment to reflect on the conversation that we've just had and talk about the things that really resonated with us individually and maybe calls to action that we heard that we want to follow up on. John, would you like to reflect first? Sure. Yeah, one thing that strikes me is, and this is something I've been mulling over the last couple of years myself, is that there's a deeply ingrained thread in geek culture and nerd subculture about how terrible managers are and how they're you need to like basically protect yourself from a manager and oh god if you turn into a manager then you've gone to the other side and i think a lot of that probably comes from people who have had bad managers for most of their careers uh, and i certainly just picked that up sort of as an as, as by osmosis just by being in the culture in the early parts of my career and it wasn't until i actually had a good manager like and this has really been just in the last year or two that suddenly i'm like oh now i see what the possibilities are i see it's not just this adversarial thing it's it's teamwork where we can work together to develop myself and to, and to work for the company to make everything better and just seeing like suddenly seeing that possibility show up recently has been really great for me and i and certainly you have your work cut out for you trying to change a lot of these ingrained cultures not only from the sort of engineering you know nerd culture side of things but also from the business side of things where they may not see manager roles as constructively as you do either but i wish you the most success that you can have <laughs> astrid what are your thoughts what struck me the most brandon is you talking about the power dynamics that exist that are untapped in a way uh, in engineering, like what it means to be an engineer, what kind of impact you can be making on your team, on your company, which I think is really important because I know that we talk in like the macro sense of what types of things we create in the world and what that can mean in the world. And I think that it's very hard sometimes to find how you scale that to just you at any level because uh, you oftentimes, at least the way that I've been told uh your job as an engineer is to get really really good and then once you get really good then you can think about these other things so it feels like a lot of people are really just so focused on trying to improve them their own skills that they're not thinking of these other things as part of that skill set and the way that you've described this today makes me think about what it really means to be embarking on an engineering career in any form and the highest levels that i I can achieve are probably things that have not even really been thought about yet, which is a different way to think about what a career means. For me, I'm really um, struck by what you said, Brandon, about people who are at the end of their careers in their last job. And I've been doing software development for almost 25 years now. 
I probably still have another good 20 years ahead of me, especially because of some bad decisions I made with retirement accounts. But uh, I'm interested in figuring out what my legacy will be. I'm well known for a lot of things in the community, for the Contributor Covenant and for the Post-Meritocracy Manifesto and as a speaker and as a mentor. But I'm wondering if I'm going to leave a technical contribution behind as well, or if it even matters if I leave a technical contribution as my legacy. Maybe my legacy is a generation of empowered engineers who stay in the industry. But that's something I want to think about, and that's something I want to think about actively and plan for and start working toward. So thank you for that. What were your thoughts? Well, first off, to respond to that really quickly, I I think a lot of engineers, including myself, would aspire to someday have the kind of legacy that you have already uh, sort of had. Um, And so having the time and energy to think about additional things that you might want to accomplish is really great. I think that's terrific. Something that struck me when Astrid was talking about trying to translate the skills that she had in in a previous career uh, to her career as an engineer reminds me of how much I've discovered in my career coming this being my second career. I didn't write a line of code until I was 30. How, how much of my skills and abilities and the things that make me good at what I do uh, when I'm working at my best come from that previous career. And how little I understood at the time of what that translation was and how how important it is to be able to take time periodically to look at the stuff that you're good at from those other career tracks and look at situations where that can apply and recognizing your own value in that context uh, and helping people recognize that value and actually writing job descriptions that take advantage, job descriptions and interviews that take advantage of uh, the kind of skills that emerge from other career tracks is the responsibility of this emerging group of managers. So what I'm going to take away and literally do with this is I'm going to evaluate the job descriptions that we do and write and make sure that they're not uh, skill lists that you, you know, you could pull from somebody's GitHub profile, but actual things that would take into account if this person had been doing, you know, working in an operational role in some other industry for 10 years, what sort of those skills will translate over and how do we make sure we interview for that and get those people to apply? I really like that take. If I can um, self-promote for a moment, Brandon, I did, uh, I was involved in rewriting the job description template at Stitch Fix and we got a really good response from, uh, from people about it. We had a, a sharp uptick in people from underrepresented populations who ended up applying. And I wrote about the experience in a blog post called Not Applicable, What's Your Job Description's Really Saying. So uh, maybe that's something that you'd want to take a look at. And I'll share the link in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you. That wraps up episode 97 of Greater Than Code. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was a very illuminating conversation. And I think you're your your quest is both fascinating and necessary and i wish you all the luck in the world thank you all so much this was great 